This is Glenn Murphy with NC Sistema, and this is Sistema for Life. How are you? How are you? I'm good, how are you? Yeah, not too bad, yeah. So this week I want to talk a little bit about um, feelings, how we feel about stuff and emotions and how they're put together. And this was spurred on um, by a book that I'm reading right now by um, Professor... Lisa Feldman Barrett, and uh, it's, it's called How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain. And, and it threw up a whole bunch of kind of things for me that, as always, were reflected in Systema, uh, or things that we learn from Systema, but just kind of contextualize them with the science. So I kind of want to go into that a little bit today and talk about how, um, how emotions feed into not just Systema and our practice, but our daily lives, and how Systema might help us to explore that interaction. Let's do it. Cool. So... When you woke up this morning, how were you feeling? How was I feeling? So I was a little bit tired and groggy. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to get up and do work, and I yeah. wanted to stay in bed. So there was some conflict there. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I was grateful, and I was worried about money. Mm. Okay. Uh, so, <laughs> did you feel all those things simultaneously, or did they kind of like come in and out at different times after you woke up? Yeah, I think I. The, the initial feeling was sort of a body state, and then I mm. kind of went to figure out like what was the cause of the body state. And mm. so then these, these little uh, threads started weaving themselves together. Yeah. Uh, but it's, you know, it started with just sensation. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and funny enough, that's exactly what um, Professor Barrett says about how emotions are built within our minds. We tend to think we follow this kind of narrative a lot of the time that emotions are just things that happen to us, right? That we get angry and we uh, get sad and we um, get angry or we get horny or whatever it's going to be, right? And that just happens to us and then we act because of it. And so it's just kind of like cause, effect, stimulus, response, as if we're kind of mice in a cage and there's nothing else going on. Um, But even actually in lower mammals um, than us, we find that um, emotions are more complex than that. They're more kind of nuanced and kind of divided out. And especially in humans, where we have this kind of divided brain, where we have the cortex bit that tries to analyze and reason and build a narrative over everything that we've got. Um, We have these massive memory centers all over the brain trying to kind of make sense of what's going on right now by comparing it to the past. Um, We have the same body sensing mechanisms as most other mammals. We're kind of taking in information from uh, our nervous system from all over the body, both the state of tension of our body, our blood pressure and uh, the heart rate and all of those kinds of things that we've talked about before in this stress episode. Um, but then we have this, um, this emotional center of the brain as well, where, where most of our emotions seem to kind of originate. But what we've really found is that it's not that fear just starts there at the amygdala and just fear is just produced. Um, that actually what happens is that that center of the brain just interprets a bunch of sensations. So the sensation comes first. Your brain is basically kind of like the Homer Simpson sitting at the desk at the nuclear power plant. And as long as all the gauges are fine, it's just kind of snoozing and ticking over. It ignores about 99.999% of the information that's coming in and says, if everything hasn't changed, then there's no reason to worry, right? We'll just be fine. And then if something happens, if a dial switches and there's a sudden spike in blood pressure or a heart rate, or a sudden kind of stab of pain to the right side of the body, it's like, what, what am I feeling and why, right? It starts to kind of look at things and it compares your experience now with memory, mostly associative memory, which is pretty automatic, 
um, in the past. And if it comes out with something that's quite similar, then so that's probably what's happening. And it lays over a memory of the whole thing, uh, lays over a narrative, a story about how you got here. And then that whole thing is what we experience as the emotion. Um, so for example, you're out with a friend that you used to know for a long time. You get back together after a while and you just kind of say, hey, we really should go for coffee. And then they say something that feels kind of scathing where you feel like that they did. And you feel this kind of little stab of something in your, in your belly and maybe kind of around the chest or something like that. And you're like, ah, and you interpret that as like, well, there's a bit of pain here. They just said that thing. Probably I'm angry at them. I never liked this person. That's why I never stayed in touch in the first place. Why are we even having coffee? But it might just be that we're experiencing heartburn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and our brain's overlaying a weird story. We're feeling kind of odd from when we woke up that morning. And it's kind of misinterpreting what's going on. So th- th- this whole idea that constructions are, uh, sorry, that emotions are constructed kind of lays open our interpretation of what's going on in our daily lives. And it, and it kind of points out to us how we can just get things wrong all the time. We can uh, assign the wrong explanation to emotions that we're feeling. And I think it's quite important to be able to kind of pass that out and figure out what's going on to us so that we don't make huge and massive mistakes with our relationships and, and interactions with people. So does that imply that if, relation, if, if emotions are constructed, mm. that we can apply intention and, and discernment and construct better emotions? Possibly, yeah. I, I don't think... I don't think we can construct emotions on purpose. It's it's very, very hard. I mean, you can, in meditation and some certain uh, psychotherapy practices, people will sit and try to um, manifest the state of, I don't know, um, compassion for all living things or something like that, right? And if you think about it hard enough, if you focus all of your attention on the memory, say, of somebody that you love very, very deeply, and you just hold that in your mind for like 20 minutes, um, then it's possible. Maybe um, that combination of like sensation of associative memory and your like focus on the whole thing can start to, on purpose, build that feeling. And then you start to experience compassion for all living things, right? That might be how it happens. Um, but most of us don't walk around doing that, trying to generate emotions about things. You can try and change the way that you think about things, certainly. Um, but I think the most useful kind of thing that you can take out of this idea is that if you can construct emotions, then you can deconstruct them as well, right? The the construction typically happens subconsciously. It just happens to you. You start to feel the emotion, but you can sort of say to yourself, okay, why am I feeling this? And is this what I think it is? So for the example that you gave, you woke up feeling kind of groggy and bleh, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So Professor Feldman would describe that as general affect. And most people go through their days this way. They, they don't really pass out exactly what they're feeling in terms of very, very specific emotions or assign meaning to them right away. And they're just like, I feel, Ugh, I feel a bit off, right? Or I feel tired or I feel stressed. And this one word stressed has come to encompass almost everything now, mm-hmm. like that way, right? Um, or I feel peppy. I feel good, right? So it's kind of like there's good and there's bad. And if you don't have the vocabulary, the, the emotional or physiological vocabulary to kind of speak in any more nuanced terms than that, then that's, that's your general terms of what you're talking about, right? Um, now, if you feel bad, it could be for any number of reasons. It could have been because of a crappy night's sleep. It could have been because you ate something that didn't agree with you last night. Uh, it could be that you're um, just anxious about uh, you're getting laid off at work or something like that, right? It could be there's an overreaching problem. You're worried about the state of the government or gun control or any number of other things that you looked at on the news yesterday, something like that. Um, but the point is that what your brain will typically do, if you don't search for an explanation, it will probably assign the first one that that occurs to it, right? It'll be like, yeah, good enough, gun control. I'm angry about gun control, and that's why I feel crappy, right? When it might be that you ate something crappy, and that's why you feel bad, right? And it's just assigning the wrong story. So I think um, knowing this doesn't necessarily help us. We can't intellectualize our way out of it. But if we practice experiencing emotions, 
um, and Sistema is one way of doing that, then it helps us to kind of hold uh, emotions like objects in front of us and kind of turn them around and look at them from different angles and build up an, a deeper vocabulary of sensations and emotions and then sort of understand better how they relate to each other. I think meditation asserts to do the same thing and, and works if you keep at it. But Sistema is a very um, physical sensation-based way of approaching the same thing, I think. So in the case of uh, your coffee with a friend, yeah, you then would be able to uh, reinterpret or, or question, mm. the, did, did they say that thing that makes me not want to see them anymore? Yeah. Uh, and, and then sort of proactively save the relationship if you decide, well, no, that wasn't it. Yeah, maybe. Um, the tricky thing there is sort of saying, well, how do you notice yourself doing that, right? How do you notice yourself applying the wrong story and then instantaneously apply another one? Um, and the simple answer in systemic terms is you just stop, you take a breath, right? You pause, you inhale, exhale, you let yourself settle a little bit and then you see if you can kind of sense what's going on in your body. If you feel like tension, your back is up, something's happened that way, you can be like, okay, I'm on edge. Why am I on edge? And then you kind of go deeper with that feeling and then you're like, well, actually I feel on edge because... There's a kind of a dense sensation in my torso, in the lower abdomen. And it's like, maybe I'm experiencing a bit of heartburn or something. <laughs> That's not agreeing with me. And maybe I'm conflating that, like a combination of kind of a density in the stomach and a combination with mild irritation at my friend. And, and I'm assigning a different story to it. So just that simple act of stopping and attempting to kind of um, pass out those, those sensations might help us to reassign something to it. So, I mean, one thing I'm thinking is that there are certain emotions that all of us prefer to feel to other emotions. And I'm wondering yeah. if one of the things the brain does mm. is, so if I'm, if I'm angry at my friend, mm. that I like feeling angry. Angry is an agreeable, happy, comfortable, familiar feeling for me, mm. whereas maybe guilt, because mm. I let the relationship slide, is something that I absolutely never want to feel. Mm. And I'm wondering if, we, if, if one of the ways that we we mismanage our emotions is by constantly going back to our happy, you know, not our happy ones, but our, mm. our favorite ones. Yeah. Uh, because we're terrified of feeling the ones that we're not willing to feel. Yeah, absolutely. And this gets well beyond my remit and into the realm of, of psychotherapy and other things like how do you kind of look at the backstory and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and, and certainly I think that's, that has some value. And I think that's really interesting to look at. Um, we definitely have a tendency to just avoid discomfort in any way, avoid looking at things that cause us even more discomfort going forwards. For the most part, you know, lower animals have very, very basic ones. They have fear and terror, and that takes you away from things that might eat them or damage them. And then you have lust and greed, which takes you, to, takes you towards things that will feed, nourish you, and help you pass DNA into the next generation, right? And we've inherited those, certainly. We still have, um, and, you know, advertisers will capitalize on that. And fear as well. You know, um, you're afraid that you're, you know, you're not safe and so you need this alarm system for your house you're afraid that your breath stinks so you need this toothpaste and, and you know advertising has known this for a lot of years and played on this aspect of psychology and um, we know all this right uh, you know it i know it the advertisers know it facebook knows it <laughs> playing on it for quite some time um, but humans have a lot more nuanced emotions than that right we don't just have um, abject terror and fleeing from things. We have subtle grades of anxiety and um, and irritation and, and, and anticipation about things. Uh, we have excitement. We have uh, layers of contempt and disgust, not just anger. We have kind of blending of emotions and, way, and ways that things kind of come together. So I think the more that we can practice experiencing the differences between those things and kind of 
um, see them as things that come in and out of our minds and our bodies, um, the better we are at switching between them. So we can kind of make that mental switch, at least identify it and say, ah, I'm experiencing anger right now, or I'm experiencing disgust, and why? Right? Um, rather than just kind of feel this general affect of like, I don't like this, this feels icky. Right? <laughs> and then acting on that basis and, and avoiding something just because it causes us discomfort, right? For example, you might be disgusted by a food at first. I lived in Japan a couple of years and ate a lot of things that before I moved to Japan, I would have considered disgusting and inedible, right? And even the trips to Thailand as well, I ate crickets and fried scorpions and all kinds of stuff like that, right? But I had my immediate response was disgust. I was like, I don't want to eat it. It's like, why? Well, that's just because culturally I never grew up eating scorpions and, and like those things in England, right? But maybe I would if I grew up and that was like the staple or, or I had to for a while or something like that, right? So I got over my disgust and I was like, oh, scorpions aren't bad. They're kind of crunchy, right? <laughs> They're okay. So it's... Um, well, the, the same thing I had with, you know, mm-hmm. blood pudding and spotted dick and... Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, people <laughs> your, go to your, England. Your cuisine is not exactly... Yeah, uh... What's wrong with a deep fried blood clot? That's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Black pudding's a... Yeah, it's a... It's an acquired taste. Let's put it that way. Um, but coming back to the point, uh, I think Systema is a really, really interesting way of helping us kind of delve into this morass of sensation and emotion and attention and where it goes and to get more kind of conscious control over the whole process and have us feel less like emotions are just happening to us and that we have to act on them and a little bit more like emotions happen and we have to accept that we don't want to be emotionless um but that we have some say in how we experience them and certainly a lot of say in how we act on them well, so if, I mean, my understanding of emotions is that biologically they're they're an, an impetus for action. Yeah, right? that there's something that we need to do. Yeah, to move from whatever the emotion is, or to move towards you know keeping it or intensifying it if it's a positive emotion. Yeah, and so if our, and I guess our brains are sort of hardwired to work as little as possible, right? Yeah. so mm-hmm. that's why they slap the first obvious. Yeah. Description on it and a yeah. label so that we can just act on that. Hmm. Um, but if you say that you know, humans have this capacity for this endless variety, this sort of, you know, Pantone hmm. palette of emotions as opposed to uh, the primary colors. Yeah. Then, you know, especially in our social relationships, we yeah. have we have a lot more choices, a lot more options yeah. to to do the thing that gets us what we really want. Yeah. Right. Because there's very few times in my life when anger mm. was the emotion that got me what I wanted. Yeah. Was it ever? Can you remember a time when it got you what you wanted? Um, no. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I so, mean, maybe, yeah. maybe it, it sort of roused me mm. like anger, you know, got me out of depression or anger got me started. Like mm. I can think of I think I can think of hundreds of times when I started doing a thing for the wrong reason, but it was the yeah. right thing to do. And so, yeah, yeah. You, you know, like, but no, in terms of like strategically using anger to achieve a goal. Yeah. Like, no, it's been the opposite. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Yeah. And the same is probably true of most emotions, right? If you follow kind of like lust or greed to the logical endpoints, then probably they're not going to take you to a good place either. But maybe lust or greed took you towards somebody or something that turned out to be a good thing for you in your life, provided you put a cap on it at some point, right? And right. I guess a lot or, of kind or, of, or it's yeah. like, you know, sort of like a heat-seeking missile. Like, I, you yeah. know, I see, I see an object of lust, yeah. and that, you know, gets me moving, but then yeah. to attain 
yeah. whatever I want from that object yeah. generally requires something more sophisticated. Chasing it with your penis, yes. Has <laughs> <laughs> limited success as a tactic, I find. <clears throat> anyway. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so, so there's a basic drill in system. There's a couple of basic drills which I really like for this. And, and one is where... Um, which involves just movement. So this is quite gentle and anybody can try this out. And it's when we do the kind of lead and follow drill, when one person pushes and pulls uh, a partner around and, and your job is just to kind of let that movement translate to your feet as soon as possible, right? You keep your back straight and you don't allow yourself to be tilted or pulled out, out of position. You just literally, it's almost like the person's trying to push and pull you around and you just treat them like a, a dance partner who's leading, right? Mm-hmm. And you end up moving to a new position, you keep your posture, you stay relaxed, you feel calm and it's all good, right? That's the fundamental drill. And then you play with that drill in different emotional states. So the second the person touches you or starts to grab you and push and pull you around, in your mind, you imagine very, very strongly that you're just disgusted by the whole thing. You can't stand to be touched by them, right? They've, um, they've got some hideous, uh, contagious disease, which is all over their skin and with pustules on them or something like that, right? You just you don't even want to be touched at all, right? So you generate disgust or contempt. And then you do the same movement. You try not to move a different way. You just kind of move with that feeling in your mind, right? And immediately, um, you might not feel like you're moving differently, but the partner, the person who's trying to move you around feels this kind of heaviness and reluctance to move. It's really interesting. Just by expressing or trying to feel that emotion, it affects your whole neuromuscular patterning and you become kind of stodgy. You almost become like a sandbag. You become difficult to move. Um, And you start to kind of lose balance in places or you kind of stagger or make small stagger steps and you realize that, carrying that emotion is not going to be helpful to you in a fight because it makes you too heavy on your feet, too reluctant to move. You're like, like this way, right? Mm. You might think that disgust or contempt and not wanting somebody to touch you would make you more flighty and more willing and more likely to kind of pull away, snap away. Um, But what it does instead is just kind of make you um, freeze and kind of stare at the person and be like, how dare you, right? And that doesn't kind of help in that movement. Um, And then you'll pick another emotional state. So maybe you'll go to complete indifference. Like, I don't even care that you're touching me. I don't care that you're pulling or pushing me around. You don't matter to me at all and neither does anything else. Right? This kind of teenage malaise feeling. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, who cares? It doesn't matter, man. That kind of thing, right? And if you generate that, what you find is that the person moves you around but more than you want them to, right? You become like a rag doll. But it's very, very easy for them to shove you kind of uh, out of range or pull you into them. And you tend to lose your balance and your structure a lot more easily because you're not paying enough attention to the person. If you're indifferent to them, you're not paying respecting their position. You're not respecting their power, the danger or the threat that they might pose. Um, and you're out of touch with your partner that way. And then you go for a third one, which is curiosity. You try and kind of be genuinely curious about what the person is doing when they're pushing and pulling. And this usually kind of is accompanied with you kind of looking at them out the side of your eye or just kind of, hmm, you have like a semi-quizzical expression on your face when you're working. Um, and that one tends, tends out to be the most useful in terms of combative movement, right? They, if you're interested in what somebody's doing and you're kind of um, looking at it as if you're learning from it, um, then you start to see more. And then your body starts to, in very, very small ways, anticipate the push or the pull. And you start moving into kind of useful positions and you keep your posture very easily. And the whole thing just seems to go on autopilot. And you're like, ah, oh, this is the state that I need, curiosity, mm-hmm. right? So that's one. And then there's another drill where you strike somebody. You just punch them in the stomach. And the first time you hit them, you try and generate anger, right? You're like, Ugh, 
hero. I hate the guy, right? And you hit him. Um, and obviously, you have to do this with people that you trust, and you have to be, um, you know, all of the usual maxims at making sure the partner is getting is ready to be struck, that they have the training, they're breathing correctly, they know how to hold structure, that they're not too stiff, or coming into the class with, you know, some other emotion that you're going to bring to the forefront. Um, but once you've kind of cleared all that out and you're you're kind of emotionally neutral, then you start to generate anger in yourself as a striker, and then you hit them just once or with a bit of anger that way, right? And they feel it, and it feels sharp. And it feels strange. And then you go to indifference, like, I don't care about you. Um, mm-hmm. You're just there and I'm just swinging a fist. It's just um, just physics. It's just a, like a, a battering ram and I'm swinging it at your meat sack of a body. Right? And bam, you hit them. And they're like, ah. And they feel that you don't care about them. But it's, and it's sloppy and it's usually imprecise as well. And so it has a different quality to it. The actual touch has a different quality to it. Um, and then the third one is that you try and generate, generate genuine love and compassion as if you're giving somebody a a massage but in the vertical position like oh hey like you might slap somebody on the back like yeah. you know, there's a I think in a Latin American cultures when they greet each other there's a I think it's called or something there's kind of like a like a hug a half hug that you do with a, a bit of a slap on the back as you oh. greet someone it's kind of like that it's just like oh hey what's going on man but you hit them that way and that turns out to be the, the deepest strike of all that goes all the way in and they're like oh god it really kind of knocks them for six so just this kind of messing with your emotional state it, it shows how your whole body, your neuromuscular tension, the way that you deliver force, um, becomes almost like a barometer of what's going on on the inside. And it shows you how important it is, um, how much emotions affect your, your physical movement, um, but your, your behavior generally. So I think the corollary from that is that if that's what it can do to your overall movement, think what it does just on a very, very subtle psychological level and how much it influences your decisions and the way that you answer people and respond to people as well. Mm-hmm. Well, and also it's interesting to me that the person who's pulling or pushing you around yeah. can sense your, you know, your disgust. Yeah. Or something. Like if you're, if you're walking around with untamed emotions of which you're hardly aware, yeah. everybody else is aware of them. Yeah. Even if they couldn't articulate it. Yeah. Right. It's, it's like like pheromones or something like this secret language that we're sending out. Yeah. Through our through our bodies. I don't I know. I don't know if we're sending it out through, uh, you know, our uh, the, the the electrical impulses in our hearts or, mm. or like, you know, stuff that's, that's sort of on the fringe of, of what science knows. Yeah. But we're certainly communicating mm. to other people if we're if we're walking around like in a state of disgust or apathy yeah. or, or curiosity. Yeah, I mean, if nothing else, your body takes on slightly different posturing with each one of those, right? There'll be slightly different micro-expressions in the face. There'll be different ways that you hold your shoulders and your hips and your spine. And they might seem like tiny differences. I mean, it'd be hard for you to look at somebody and say, based on the way that they're walking, are they disgusted or are they um, just irritated and that kind of stuff, right? But um, you know, if you look at highly trained body workers, people like my good friend Aaron Marco, he probably could tell you that based on or what at least what emotion they spend most of their time in, right? Mm-hmm. And the same thing patterning on people's faces. If you spend most of your time kind of in disgust and contempt, that tends to kind of etch itself on your face, right? It's like the old old wives adage my mother used to tell me, like, don't make that face, you know, when you try some food, some good green food or something when you're a kid, and I'm like, Bleh, and I make like the Calvin and Hobbes face. And she'd be like, don't change that face, you know, but take that face if the wind changes it will stay like that or you'll get stuck with this disgusted face and then nobody will like you right so kind of a great mum story to mostly to make you eat your greens and just have a stiff upper lip and not express too much emotions in, in britain right yeah. that kind of stuff but it's actually true if you spend most of your time hanging out in those states and your face a pattern in those states then the muscular tension patterns in your face will tend to 
default to those a lot easier and, and you'll look like somebody who's disgusted all the time. I had teachers at school who looked like they were just revolted by children. They just, they just had this, they looked like they'd been sucking a lemon all day. You know? <laughs> Their default state looked like that. And I'm like, you don't really like being a teacher, do you? And you could kind of see it uh, in their face. And, and similarly, as somebody spends most of their time you know, contemplating joy and compassion and somebody like the Dalai Lama or something, right? You can see this openness and joy in their face, right? And yet I see that too in Vladimir and Michael. And, you know, they're genuinely open, happy people and they're compassionate. And you can, you can kind of see that. They've practiced doing it and being it and therefore they look benevolent. And people, holy people a lot of the time, you know, priests and um, imams and people like that, they, they tend to look like that, that open kind of like welcoming thing and you, and you want to talk to them as a result. So maybe just on a very, very fundamental level, we don't need much more than that to pick up on people's emotions, right? We, we kind of know from the facial expression, the way they're walking or holding their body, what state they're in. But as you say, if that's us ourselves, we might not, we can't see ourselves in the mirror all, all day long. We can't carry a mirror along around everywhere to see our own facial expressions. And we can't um, watch ourselves in the you know shop windows to make sure that we're walking in the right way that doesn't you know uh, seem to be exhibiting anger and stuff like that. Yeah, mm. well, and it's, um, you know, so if, if we going through life with a, uh, a really entrenched set of emotions we can you know our mirror is everybody else around us yeah but we don't necessarily know you know we think it's them yeah so there's like that story about the guy who goes to some, some other town and says you know um, the people where I, how what are the people like here because where mm. i come from people are are cheats and crooks and mm. you know the old guy sitting on the porch says yeah yeah it's pretty much what you'll find here mm. and then someone else comes and says well you know what are the people like here i come from a town where everyone's loving and kind and he says yeah that's pretty much what you'll find here mm. right yeah i got you yeah you tend to the world around you mirrors you definitely and there's that you get into that kind of woo-woo kind of thing where people say oh be the change you want to see in the world right that you have to start with yourself and then and then exhibit kindness and love and then other people will too and all that kind of stuff i don't think you have to invoke any kind of mystical energy for that to be true it's like if you walk around um looking angry all the time like stomping slamming doors and stuff like that you'll make other people around you on edge right they're like well he he might snap at any time so maybe i should be guarded um and you might be fearful in response to that anger or you might then feel kind of a resentment you're like, well, how dare you be angry all the time in my presence? Now I'm angry at you for being angry, stupid, right? <laughs> and then you just kind of have this cloud of anger follows you around and it spreads and maybe the person goes to work and makes somebody else angry and there it goes. It becomes almost like a contagious yawn or something. Like one person does it and then everybody else does out of sympathy for it or, you know, some shared kind of feeling. And so, yeah, so, so there's, there's another reason, I think, why we should try to be more aware of our emotions and then acknowledge that we do have some control over that. We're not toddlers. Right? We don't just get to throw a tantrum and then the rest of the world has to run around us and calm us down and figure us out. It's our own responsibility to to recognize and control our emotions as mature adults. And if we if we don't embrace that, and if we instead stamp our feet and say, no, the world should run around my uh, disappointment and it should run around mm-hmm. my sense of offense and all of those kinds of things, um, then you get to a dangerous place where everybody's emotions are right and justified. Um, and I don't think that's a world that I want to live in. No, just just mine are right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Clearly, not everybody else. Just mine, just mine. Yeah, yeah well, it's, it's mm. funny because you mentioned uh, the that uh, push push drill or, or leading drill, and the third emotion was curiosity. Yeah, and I'm really getting fascinated by curiosity, which I never thought of as an emotion. Mm. But you know, I was reading you know Judd Brewer's work on um, on sort of mindfulness, mm. and he's like. like Curiosity is a positive emotion. Yeah. 
um, but it's not excitable. Mm. Um, and that, you know, for me, carry, like I can't always pull out love and compassion mm. at a moment's notice for some jerk, mm. right? Mm. For, for someone who's been rude to me or ignored me or something like, like yeah. I'm not the Dalai Lama, yeah. but I can always pull out curiosity. So why is he a joke? Yeah, yes. Or what, yeah. you know, yeah. what am I feeling here? What's going on here? Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, so it's, it's this. It, it flips me into kind of this positivity without mm. <clears throat> requiring of me some sort of superhuman, you know, um, control. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely, there's a lot of ways of thinking about it. Is it one, one, um, one way of looking at this kind of construction of emotions, which I think is really interesting, is that if the, if the constituent parts are sensations that come from your body, right? It's feedback, it's tension from your body, it's blood pressure, it's all it's kind of subtle shifts that are kicked off partly by the autonomic nervous system and partly just by other things, right? That are just happening. Um, digestion, any number like feeling sick, lymphatic system, all kinds of other stuff, right? So you have those inputs coming into the brain. And then you have um, attention, like literally where your consciousness is right now. Is it on the other person? Is it on yourself? Is it on something that's sitting on the table in between you is this, that iPhone that that person has put there that's irritating you so much because it keeps going off and they keep looking at it, right? So where your attention is will also feed into that narrative. Um, and then finally, the the memory. And um, so what images is this whole interaction throwing up? Are you, are you remembering something? Oh, this is just like when I talk to my mother or is this just like when I talk to that guy or, or he's just like... Um, this time when that kid bullied me at school or something like that, right? What, what memories are coming up? Now, in, very, in a very real way, um, mindfulness, meditation, and all of those kinds of practices are a study of attention, right? They're a study of where you put your consciousness. And kind of, am I thinking right now? What am I thinking about? Monkey mind, things are jumping in and out of my head. Nope, let's come back to the breath. Let's just put my attention on one thing, just thinking about breathing. Here it goes again. Oh, coming back to breathing. Oh, there's me thinking about breathing. That's no good, right? So you're constantly, constantly kind of playing around with the idea of what attention is and where it's going, right? Um, memory, the study of emotive, associative memory is pretty much the realm of psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. It's like, well, why do you constantly feel these things or have to behave this way? Let's look at your parents. Let's look at your upbringing. Let's look at you know, these adverse experiences you might have had during childhood, right? And then you start to kind of pull apart those memories and then try to, in rationalizing those and sort of saying, oh, I don't need to feel this way. This is just this memory reinstating itself again and again and again. Um, then maybe we can make sense of that and we can not make those associations. And there's, it's arguable how well that works, <laughs> but it's a study, right? That's, that's the study of memory and how it kind of feeds into your emotions. Um, but to me, there are very few things that encourage you to look at that third aspect, which is just looking at the inputs, looking at the sensations. And that's um, Moshe Feldenkrais and his kind of work. He's like all about studying awareness through movement. He's like, well, when you move, if you're trying to make a very, very simple movement, like lay flat on your back and just lift a finger off the ground, just one finger, middle finger, for example, not being angry, just lifting it out um, this way. And you can't do that without tensing your shoulder or your bicep. Then why? You know, what's going on with that? Why can't you just kind of get that individualized control and make it work? And we do drills like this in Systema too, like when you reach across the body just from one hand and that carries you from a, a, a supine to a prone position, things like that. And then in studying movement, in studying sensation, what's going on during movement, um, we are studying what it is to experience things, right? So we're kind of just singling out that one little variable and be like, I'm just gonna put a lot of 
attention on the sensations that I'm having, right? And then by kind of passing out that one little thing, sensations, and getting so familiar with it that you're like, oh, this is one big aspect of my existence and my conscious experience, then you become more comfortable with all of it. You become more comfortable with walking around people, with being close to people, with talking to people, right? So, so you could, in theory, study any of those things, any of those ingredients of the emotional soup, right? You could study attention through mindfulness stuff. You could study your memories through psychotherapy and analysis and therapy and all that kind of stuff. Or you could study sensation itself. There's probably value to all three, um, but I've, I've found a lot of benefit in just looking at those sensations, just in terms of health and in terms of what you can do with it. Right. And yeah. I've been uh, you know, studying uh, Bessel van der Kolk's work on, on trauma. And yeah. you know, his book is called The Body Keeps the Score, which kind of yeah. tells us where, yeah. where he comes down on this. And mm. like, I'm thinking back to you know, Homer Simpson in the control room, yeah. that you know, Homer Simpson is, is not the person you want in the control room. Yeah, right. And yeah. Um, you know, how do you change your, you know, so if, if your body has been traumatized by past events so that you interpret benign things as as mortal threats yeah right so how do you recalibrate and i don't think you recalibrate it through memory no right? or or even through, i mean you can do it through through mindfulness as it relates to sensation but yeah. sort of, you know sort of re-embodying yourself coming back to your body yeah then that's the thing that gives you leverage and new inputs to say oh this sensation doesn't necessarily mean I'm about to be annihilated. Yeah, it helps you to break that connection, that automatic associative memory, right, uh, with, with something that's, that's not, that's you think is bad. Yeah, definitely. Um, I don't think there's too many other things that can do that, right? Um, and often I think that people, when psychotherapy fails and when they have a go at mindfulness and can't keep their minds on it for more than 30 seconds and say that it's not going to work, then the fallback position is my body's out of control. There's a chemical imbalance in my brain. Let's drug it. Right? That's what happens when you get to that state. People are like, well, you can't control the sensations and the emotions that are happening to you. So now you have to go to plan C, which is let's just blanket, let's carpet bomb your chemical, <laughs> the chemical inputs of your emotions, right? And mess with your serotonin levels in, in your brain, right? It's like, well, okay, but what other effects is that going to have on sleep? What's that, what other effects is that going to have on um, digestion and how you, how you process food? Right. There's, serotonin is involved in so many different things that it just seems like like a, a nuclear missile to solve a problem that could be solved by a baseball bat, you know, <laughs> something like that. Right, or, or yeah. like, we're, you know, we've had a lot of trouble the last few weeks uh, with the recording levels and the microphones. Yeah. And once, you know, we're getting a lot of hiss and background noise, and one solution is just to turn the input volumes down so low yeah. that we don't hear the hiss, but yeah. we also don't hear the words very well. Sure. So, yeah. you know, I think a lot of the, the, the psychopharmacology is basically mm. saying, well, this thing really hurts, so let's... Mm let's pour something on it that makes everything hmm. less. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the goal then, so maybe as Sistema is frequently termed working on yourself, right? It's not working out, it's working on yourself. Then maybe the work here needs to be held more in the, more in the forefront of our minds when we're actually in training. Um, that the goal of training is not to acquire new abilities uh, or to acquire new collections of body movements that can help us do stuff. And that the goal of the work is actually to um, train our inner Homer Simpson <laughs> to, to be a better monitor of, the, of that nuclear power plant and maybe make him into somebody who's more qualified and to do that job and to, to check your gauges more often and to, to understand yourself and your environment and how you react to it better. Um, and I think that's probably also a good reason why 
you can only get limited value out of Sistema if you go once or twice a week, and that's your only experience of trying Sistema, right? That you, the rest of your life, the rest of your day, the rest of your week, you just allow emotions to wash over you. You get angry and slam the dashboard when you're in a traffic jam. You, you know, shout at people and snap at them. You, you know, all those kinds of things. If that's what you're doing, and then you're relying on that hour and a half, uh, you know, in two days' time when you're going to train to fix all those problems, but you spend 95% of your time doing the opposite, you can't expect Homer Simpson to get trained very well here, right? So, so I think it's important for us. And nobody's a saint. We all kind of slip up. I know I do all the time. I probably did this morning about three times. Um, but to try and apply that to our daily lives, like that's the system of training we could be doing all day, every day before we get to class. Um, we can try and monitor our gauges more carefully. We can try and question our responses more carefully and ask where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah. so, you know, if, if this is a systema for life, yeah. then you can also say life for systema. Yeah, totally. Right, so that any, you know, so that I can, like some uh, meditators will say, you know, the, the person who yells at you is your meditation bell, mm. like to, to sort of flip you into yeah. that state. So, yeah. you know, the, the annoyance or whatever mm. someone's doing is, you know, you're on the mat now. So someone's doing a push-pull drill with you. Yeah. And uh, to snap you back into that state of curiosity. and Because and, and like when I'm, at, when I'm at Sistema, I'm yeah. constantly thinking about that, you know, with, yeah. your, with your guidance. Mm. I'm in a better, I'm in a more uh, mindful, bodyful state. Yeah. And so if I can remember to bring that state to the rest of my life, then yeah. I can train 24-7. Yeah, and, and for that, I would really recommend actually um, books by our two colleagues, Gene Smithson, who's um, written a, a book called, um, what's it called? Simple Not Easy, I think it is. It's like 20, 20 steps or 20 practices for a, um, a better life. And it's basically mm-hmm. systema type principles applied on a daily basis in that kind of way, having things like traffic jams or irritations snap you back into this um, state of awareness. Um, and Matt Hill in the UK as well has a, has a fantastic book on systema health practices, which can um, really help with these things. So I'll stick those in the show notes and maybe people can use those if they want more concrete examples. Cool. cool. Yeah. So I, I love that, uh, that we're not working out, you know, we're working in. Yeah. Yeah. Working in or working on. Definitely not out. <laughs> That's right. Well, thanks very much, Howie. Glad we uh, managed to do this and circumvented our technical problems and look forward to talking to you again next time. Yeah, me too. And fingers crossed that we circumvented our technical problems. <laughs> yes. we, we'll don't, find out. we don't know yet. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about training at NC Sistema, you can visit us online at www.ncsistema.com. If you'd like to find out more about Sistema classes and seminars worldwide, please visit www.russianmartialart.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can share it with your friends online, you can support us and write a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, or you can support us directly via patreon.com with a monthly contribution of $2 or more. That's www.patreon.com slash ncsystema. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for future guests and discussion topics, please contact us via www.ncsystema.com or email me directly at glenn at ncsystema.com. That's glenn with two n's at ncsystema.com. We welcome your feedback. Many thanks, good health, and see you in training.